Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. This year, AJC is hosting virtual programs on the sidelines of the virtual Democratic and Republican National Conventions. To correspond with this week's convention, we are joined by Haley Seufer, Executive Director of the Jewish Democratic Council of America. Next week, we will talk to Matt Brooks, Executive Director of the Republican Jewish Coalition. Haley Seufer previously served as National Security Advisor for Senator Kamala Harris, now the Democratic nominee for Vice President and Joe Biden's running mate. She joins us now to talk about the role Jewish voters play and how she believes Democrats address Jewish priorities. Please keep in mind, AJC is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. AJC neither supports nor opposes candidates for elective office. And with that disclaimer, Haley, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the basics and kind of the horse race aspect of this. How much of the American voting population identifies as Jewish? So the Jewish community in terms of the American population is about 2%, but we're actually about 3% of the electorate. And we play an outsized role in elections for three reasons. We vote at higher rates. You know, on average, Jewish Americans vote at a higher rate than American voters by about 15%. We also, where we live correlates with where our votes tend to matter even more. We tend to live in swing states. And a third reason, which I'm sure we'll get into, is that we overwhelmingly support Democrats. In our view, as as the Jewish Democratic Organization, that is uh, especially important in terms of the outsized impact we have. So Haley, Bernie Sanders, in his speech on Monday, addressed the many Democrats who really wanted him to be the nominee. And many of them were Jewish, are are Jewish. Many of them have views on Israel that don't jibe with the very pro-Israel aspects of the party platform. It really sounded like Bernie was calling on Democrats to unify, despite their differences. And I'm curious how the party and its leadership have prevented Israel from becoming a wedge issue. Joe Biden has done an exceptional job in unifying the party around these critically important issues, including Israel. And the platform that's been adopted at this convention exemplifies what is overwhelming democratic support for the U.S.-Israel relationship, opposition to BDS, support of full funding for military aid, and support of this historic alliance. It's the view of the majority of members of Congress. That is the Democratic mainstream view. So you emphasize a majority of Democrats. Uh, you know, certainly we've had concerns over the years about Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. Is that kind of who you're thinking about when you say a majority of Democrats feel this way? I should have said an over overwhelming majority. You mentioned two members of Congress. We currently, between the House and the Senate, have over 270. So between those two members of Congress, who we agree do not share our views on Israel, and we've spoken out against them uh, going back to before they were even elected, but between the two of them, two over 270, we're talking about less than 1% of the Democratic members of Congress. They are very outspoken, though. They have expressed views with which we disagree, and we've made that clear. And that's why we're not supporting their reelection. 
and we don't share their views. But luckily, their views are not shared by our party either. Look at the platform. I mean, the platform is the views of our candidate and the views of our party. Mm -hmm. And the platform could not be more clear in its support of Israel. What are the states to watch in this upcoming election? And in which of those states could the Jewish vote really make a difference? When we look at elections, we always look at the last election as a baseline. And we know that had Donald Trump not won Florida and either Michigan or Pennsylvania, he would not be president today. And in those three states, Florida, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, the Jewish vote alone could have made up those margins. Uh, So when we look to 2020 and this election, we are looking at the Jewish vote in those critically important states. My home state of Michigan, Donald Trump won by just 10,704 votes. Mm -hmm. That margin could be overcome by the Jewish student population of Michigan and Michigan State alone. We are looking at the Jewish vote in those three critically important states, but also states like Arizona and Colorado and Georgia, which in addition to being presidential swing states, are going to be critically important in terms of the control of the Senate. Are you saying that the Jews in those swing states voted Republican or didn't vote at all? The Jews in those swing states voted. We know that Jewish voters do turn out. And in 2016, it was no different than in previous elections. Jews turned out. But we also know that they turned out in support of Hillary Clinton at about 72%. If you look at the 2018 midterms, Jewish voters supported Democrats at 79%. So we saw an increase. We believe that in 2020, those numbers can continue to go up in terms of Jewish support for Democrats. So now we'll talk with your Republican counterpart on next week's episode. But from your vantage point, you said that most Jews identify with the Democratic Party. Why is that? So Jews have historically, for decades, identified overwhelmingly with Democrats. The values that Jews hold dear tend to be those aligned with the policies supported by Democrats. So when it comes to domestic policies, such as access to affordable health care and education and gun safety and ensuring that we are a country welcoming the stranger and not enacting cruel and discriminatory policies toward immigrants and refugees. These are all key issues driving the Jewish vote. Mm-hmm. And on those issues and more, that's where Jewish voters align with Democrats. Mm-hmm. When it comes to foreign policy as well, we know that support of Israel is an issue that is important, of course, to Jewish voters. And this is an issue where Democrats, too, are squarely aligned with the priority of Jewish voters, which is the support of the strong U.S.-Israel relationship. And in this election, 
we have a new issue. So all of those things have been constants, but we have a new issue in this election that is impacting the Jewish vote in support of Democrats. And that is our rising insecurity as a community. We have seen an unprecedented rise in anti-Semitic attacks targeting our community, including the horrific attacks in Pittsburgh and Poway. We know that 73% of Jews feel less secure than they did years ago. And over half of us blame Donald Trump for that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's because we've seen him embolden anti-Semites and white nationalists. Just last night, he tweeted out support for an extremist group, QAnon, that has peddled conspiracy theories. So on these issues, especially when it comes to the security of our community, there's a clear choice in this election, and Jewish voters especially do not believe that Donald Trump has the best interests of our community in mind. He has Jewish family members. He's certainly been friendly to Israel. Um, he's strengthened that relationship. So how does that square? There's no question he has Jewish family members. He's also married and he's done and said many misogynistic things. So that alone does not qualify him as what I would consider to be someone who's been particularly good for the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. I look at the numbers and I look at the unprecedented rise in white nationalist propaganda or anti-Semitic attacks and the words that come out of his mouth that are clear signs to anti-Semites, to racists, to bigots, that he is their ally. Whether it is identifying anti-Semites and white nationalists marching in Charlottesville as very fine people, or calling the extremists that marched in Michigan with swastikas very good people. That was earlier this year. Or hiring someone recently, Sebastian Gorka, who is affiliated with a Nazi party in Hungary. When it comes to Israel, you know, Donald Trump has been long on symbolism and short on substance. Yes, he moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and we recognize that Jerusalem is, of course, the capital of Israel. But the substance matters. And when you look at the record of Joe Biden, who, with President Obama, finalized an unprecedented historic $38 billion agreement with Israel, providing for aid for the next 10 years, and you look at the security issues that Israel faces, actually, Donald Trump has not been that great for Israel. Let's go back to that U.N. arms embargo that you just mentioned. Um, It is set to expire in October, and the Trump administration is demanding snapback sanctions go into effect. Do Democrats agree with this? What would the Biden administration do in this case? What would the approach to Iran be? You know, in the Obama administration, uh, which in many ways, Joe Biden was very much a part of it, was a part of these decisions with regard to Iran. The goal with Iran was, and would of course continue to be, to ensure that Iran does not acquire nuclear weapons. The way that the Obama administration went about it, which I I believe would be continued in a Biden administration, is to exhaust all diplomatic options to ensure that's not the case. Mm -hmm. The JCPOA was the culmination of successful diplomacy, but that didn't happen in a vacuum. It was the result of years of sanctions against Iran that forced Iran back to the negotiating table. 
Given your experience with Kamala Harris uh, as her national security advisor, do you foresee a Vice President Harris exerting as much power in foreign policy decisions as Biden and, and his predecessors? Well, having served as the national security advisor for Kamala Harris, I can tell you that she is a values-driven leader, and that includes on national security. She serves on the Senate Intelligence Committee. She's been an integral member of that committee in its three-year investigation of Russia's role interfering in our 2016 elections. She deeply values and appreciates the depth and breadth of the U.S.-Israel relationship. We traveled to Israel together, and I saw that firsthand. I know just how capable she is at leading on these issues. I can't speak to specifically what role other than vice president she would have in this administration and what role that would take on. But I know that if, in fact, Joe Biden decided that she would lead on foreign policy and national security, she would be a fantastic leader whose priorities would align with the Jewish community. And again, I've seen it firsthand as it relates to Israel. I've also seen it firsthand as it relates to our own security. When attacks started targeting our community, including in California in 2017, she led a bipartisan effort to condemn and take measures against the rise of hate crimes and white nationalism. And I was proud of that work, but you know, it was really driven directly by her. And it was a bipartisan effort. It was a resolution that passed unanimously in the Senate. And as someone who had just arrived in the Senate just a few months before, it really was a demonstration of not only her leadership, but her ability to work in a bipartisan manner to get things done that really matter. And for her, the security of our community was paramount. So I'm glad you've pivoted to domestic issues here, and I want to explore that a little bit more before we go. In fact, some polls rank Israel, Iran, Russia, you know, foreign policy issues as really at the bottom of the priority list for many, if not most, Jewish voters, and instead gauge health care, gun violence, Social Security, Medicare. Those are the key issues that Jewish voters care about. Do those mirror how you view Jewish voters' priorities? The issue that you're referring to, which we also see in polling, is when you ask Jewish voters, what are the most important issues to you when deciding which candidates to support? They will overwhelmingly choose domestic policy issues, starting with healthcare to include gun safety, climate change, economic issues, and other domestic policy issues impacting our life and our own security to include anti-Semitism. Because those are the issues where there's the biggest difference between the two parties, between Democratic candidates and Republican candidates. But we also know that when it comes to Israel, which, yes, does fall to the bottom of that list, that doesn't mean it's not a priority for Jewish voters. We know that Jewish voters overwhelmingly consider themselves to be pro-Israel. But it's not an area where there's as much distinction, frankly, between the parties, and that is a good thing. Support of Israel remains strongly bipartisan. So I think that it is what we consider to be a threshold issue. Of course, candidates have to be supportive of Israel in order to have support of Jewish voters. And the overwhelming majority of Democrats and Republicans alike meet that threshold. So voters are going to the polls, making their decisions on issues where there's the biggest distinction. 
Mm-hmm. And that is access to affordable health care. That is gun safety. That is the security of our own community. And frankly, at this stage, it's whether our leaders share our values. And it's pretty clear that Donald Trump does not. Some of these priorities have been addressed during this week's programming. Gabby Gifford's opening speech on Wednesday highlighted the importance of gun violence. The testimony of the daughter of a coronavirus victim, very moving, heartbreaking, highlighted health care. Has the virtual convention been able to really adequately explain how a Biden administration would address what matters to Jewish voters? it's exceeded expectations. It's been very accessible for people, right? So that in of itself is an accomplishment. And I do think it's had a great narrative each night about issues such as racial justice and the impact of climate change and gun safety, even gender-based violence last night. These are all issues that Jewish voters care about and prioritize the discrimination against and the targeting of immigrants and refugees. And, you know, ultimately Jews care about our issues that are correlated with our values. Haley, for those listeners who might have missed the rabbi speaking at the convention, can you tell a little bit about the story behind his appearance there? The story that is told by, by that rabbi, Rabbi Beals, is one that talks about the character of Joe Biden and frames him as a mensch, the mensch we need in the White House. But the story is that in 2006, this rabbi attended a shiva service. I was leading a shiva service and in walks Joe Biden in a very unassuming way, not necessarily to be seen or gotten, you know, he, didn't, he wasn't speaking. And the rabbi asked Joe Biden why he was there. And he said that, that this woman gave him $18 every six years and she supported him and he was there to support her family. It speaks to his empathy and his compassion and the fact that he shares our values just in terms of his character and who he is. And that has been a theme throughout this convention. Frankly, that's where when you compare that with what we're going to see next week at the Republican convention. That's the choice that voters face in this election. Well, Haley, that is a good good note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Sefi's on vacation this week, but I'm not alone. Joining me is Jason Isaacson, AJC Chief Policy and Political Affairs Officer. Jason, when you sit down with friends or family at your Shabbat table this week, what will you be talking about? Manya, at my Shabbat table, which, by the way, weather permitting, will be a folding table on the balcony of my wife's and my apartment in Washington. We'll be talking about our children, and we'll be talking about her new job as a counselor in a substance abuse clinic. And I'm quite sure we'll be talking about the latest really dramatic developments in the Middle East. Just a few days ago, as you know, President Trump, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahyan of Abu Dhabi, and Prime Minister Netanyahu announced that the United Arab Emirates and Israel will establish formal diplomatic relations. The UAE will be the third Arab country with an embassy in Israel, 26 years after Jordan and 41 years after Egypt reached peace agreements with the Jewish state. Emirati-Israeli relations will open a new chapter in the Middle East with direct flights, investments in each other's countries, educational and cultural exchanges, the sharing of energy, water management, and medical technologies, and enhanced security cooperation against extremists and other regional threats. And the small but vibrant Jewish community of the Emirates, which 
AJC, by the way, helped establish more than a decade ago, will surely grow as Israelis discover business and arts and other opportunities there in a country that celebrates diversity and that has already committed to building a synagogue on its new Abrahamic family house campus in Abu Dhabi in the next two years. And there's reason to believe that the UAE will not be the only Arab state to open new relations with Israel. In recent days, there has been considerable speculation that the coming months will see a further widening of the circle of peace, as pragmatic governments seek both to realize the vast potential benefits to their people from normalizing ties with Israel, and to use the political influence those normalized ties confer to help restart and bring to a successful conclusion Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Manya, as you know, the, the drive to expand peace and cooperation across the Middle East and North Africa to assure Israel's security and improve the lives of all the children of Abraham has long been an AJC priority. In the 29 years that I've been privileged to play a role in guiding AJC policy and our international outreach, it's the pursuit to which I've devoted the greatest attention. In the company of many able staff colleagues and hundreds of dedicated AJC lay leaders, and in partnership with creative and indefatigable Israeli diplomats, as well as brave and visionary Arab policy experts, business people, and officials. And of course, American diplomats have played a significant part throughout this. Over more than a quarter century, AJC has made scores of visits to Arab capitals, seeking to open doors and open minds to the possibilities of engagement with Israel. We've developed our own important relationships, trusted relationships with a number of Arab states, it's long been understood that a collateral benefit of openness toward Israel would be new friendships in the United States. And I couldn't be more excited about the vistas opened by the UAE-Israel announcement. I was already looking forward to leading an AJC delegation to the Israeli Pavilion in the World Expo in Dubai, which is scheduled to launch in October 2021. And now I can look forward to what just a week or so ago seemed an impossible dream to attending the opening in the not-too-distant future of the Israeli embassy in Abu Dhabi. And on the basis of really many discussions over many years in other countries in the Gulf and North Africa, I can confidently look forward to other milestones on the road to true Israeli-Arab reconciliation and cooperation in the months and years ahead. This hopeful, suddenly attainable future is what I expect to be talking about at our Shabbat table. How about at yours, Manya? Well, Jason, I love that you use the word indefatigable. No one else I know uses that word, but it is the perfect word to describe some of the folks that you deal with um, on a regular basis. I mean, frankly, they have had to be because it seemed as though they were hitting their heads against a wall for a long time, but actually the wall was cracking. Yeah. So you really do believe this will speed up diplomatic relations with other countries? I don't want to emphasize too much the speed at which this will occur, but clearly other countries have taken notice. Other countries have had various levels of contact over many years. We've facilitated some of that contact. A lot of it has happened, of course, on its own. But the advantages are so apparent and I believe will be seized by, uh, by other governments. I hope that you do get to attend the opening of the Israeli embassy in Abu Dhabi. That will be very exciting. Will there be one of those iconic photo opportunities in the White House Rose Garden soon when the United Arab Emirates signs this with Israel? Funny you should ask that because, yes, I do believe that right now in the White House they are making plans. They just obviously need to have the Emiratis and the Israelis put the finishing touches on what their agreement will look like. But I know that uh, for sure there will be a White House signing ceremony. And I, I'm guessing it's going to be before the election. 
Well, Jason, thank you so much for sharing uh, your insights on that. At our Shabbat table, we will be talking about the willing suspension of disbelief. It came up recently when my son and I were watching a trailer of Seth Rogen's American Pickle, a movie about an immigrant in 1919 who falls into a vat of pickle juice and brines for a century before popping out of the vat and seeing that things have changed a bit. I'm sure he also learns that things haven't changed that much, since that's usually how these Hollywood narratives go. But as you might have guessed, he tracks down his great-great-grandson, played by none other than Seth Rogen as well, and comedy and adventure ensue. Now, of course, my six-year-old son asked, could that really happen, Mom? And when the answer was no, so began the conversation about the willing suspension of disbelief and how it's necessary to enjoy and create literature, theater, cinema, and sometimes history. As listeners might recall, Seth Rogen, in an interview on another podcast, got himself into a bit of pickle juice doing publicity by making some sarcastic remarks about Israel. Rogan criticized his Israel education, which he said contained a huge amount of lies and questioned why it was a good idea for Jews to be gathered in one country. His attempt at humor sparked some outrage in the Jewish community, understandably. And in a series of damage control interviews afterward, Rogan clarified that his comments about Israel were made in jest and that he does not want Jews to believe he thinks the Jewish state should not exist. But it has been my experience that jokes always contain a kernel of truth. And indeed, when Rogan apologized for how the jokes came across, he also emphasized his concern that the education he received about Israel through Jewish schools and camps was, well, oversimplified. Now, this is a common complaint, and I, I wish Sefi were here this week and not on vacation to back me up on this, because he hears it a lot from the young people with whom he works. Israel is a messy, complicated, complex story to tell. And more importantly, and Jason, I think you would agree, Israel does not exist in a vacuum. The Middle East is a messy, complicated, complex story to tell, which makes the Emiratis' announcement all the more historic. I'm sure for people like yourself, Jason, envisioning a world when Israel has normalized relations with Arab countries requires, to some degree, a willing suspension of disbelief. You have to transcend just this unimaginable reality and envision history. So, I asked you who's next, and I'm sure a lot of people have a hard time imagining a friendship between Israel and some of the countries that we talked about. But willing suspension of disbelief. That's what we'll talk about at our Shabbat table this week. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.